Hello and welcome to All Rise with Diane Godfrey, the hot new true crime podcast that has people listening all over the world. We always appreciate it when you download and subscribe this podcast, tell your friends about it, and those five-star ratings and reviews really, really help. Diane's the court reporter for over three decades who witnessed it all in the courtroom, and she wrote it all down. Today, Diane and I are thrilled to welcome the Honorable Thomas A. Connors, retired Associate Justice of the Massachusetts Superior Court. He was elevated to the seat by former Governor Mitt Romney in 2004, and Judge Connors retired in 2020. Diane, I know you have a lot of questions, so we'll turn it over to you. We have a special guest this morning in the studio, Judge Thomas Connors. I'm thrilled that he graciously accepted our invitation. I've worked with him on and off for a long time in Norfolk County Superior Court. So I guess I can get right into it. You know, when you think of a judge, you have like a million questions you want to ask. And I think this is a great opportunity for me because a lot of times we're doing business in the court and it's really not appropriate to chit chat. And But um, right out of the gate, I'll ask you the obvious question to me is, how did you get into the law? What decided, like what path led you to go to law school? And did you go to school in town? And are you a Boston, were you a Boston kid growing up? Uh, well, Diana, it's wonderful to see you, and Jordan, wonderful to see you also yes, this morning. Uh, and, uh, well, that's a number of questions, and I'll tackle them serially. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I grew up in Dorchester. I grew up in the area uh, near Meeting House Hill, uh, and between Meeting House Hill and Grove Hall in Dorchester. I what parish? Uh, St. Peter's. you got to ask that question. <laughs> yep. I, I, sorry. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I uh, attended the public schools in Boston, and I graduated from Boston English High School. Uh, and when I graduated, I got accepted to Boston College, attended there, I commuted for four years. I was, we were a bit of a dying breed then. The school was transitioning from a largely commuter school to an overwhelmingly dorm student. Wow. Uh, and uh, in any case, so I commuted for the four years. And I was thinking of law. I wasn't sure. I had heard some stories. Law school may be dull. And I was very excited and interested in political science, which is what my major was in college. I took concentrated in political science and history. So uh, I ended up um, thinking I was going to law school. And then I got a fabulous offer to study political science in a doctoral program. I went down to North Carolina, the University of Chapel Hill, studied there briefly, and I decided it wasn't for me for a lot of different reasons. But I got engaged and involved more in going to law school. I replied and got accepted at BC Law for the following following fall and began law school at that that point. Um, I just said sort of an interest in law. My, my father was a Boston police officer. I can remember him dutifully studying for the sergeant's exam over time a lot and him going over the elements of crimes and everything else. And I just kind of got interested a bit in law and uh, like everybody else, you know, people watch Perry Mason and that sort of thing. And it, 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 orients, them, uh, it orients them towards that. Uh, plus, I was terrible at math, not very good at science. It seemed like a, a good path to take. Well, that's great. Um, did you, when you got out of law school, did you head in the civil or the criminal arena? Because there are two different sides of there's, law. There certainly are. And I will tell you, I sort of stumbled almost accidentally into the criminal side, uh, predominantly. And I'd, 
I opened my own practice. I opened a practice in Dorchester. I uh, shared space for a number of years with a lawyer I had gone to high school with. Uh, and I just did a general practice, but I began doing criminal cases in the local courts, Dorchester, South Boston, and Roxbury. And I just found I really, really enjoyed it. Um, the factor in criminal cases that to me makes them so fascinating is you can take the smallest case, sometimes it may not be a major crime, uh, it may be very simple, but it implicates really overarching and tremendous constitutional principles. And I saw that connection and I thought it was pretty fascinating. Uh, I did a lot of other things. I did wills. I did a lot of real estate closings. General practice lawyer did what came in the door. But I sort of concentrated over time more on criminal law. I just really enjoyed trial work. Uh, and I really loved doing that. Well, it shows because when, you know, when we were in the courtroom, obviously I've never said this to you, but I used to love to hear you talk. Like when you'd give your opinions like, you know, live in the courtroom, I just loved it. I'm like, this guy's a whip. I could just tell like you love the law. Like every interview's like you just went all in. It's just very engaging. It's interesting. Uh, you really can can focus, and when you have a well argued case in front of you, it's just it's challenging because some, especially in criminal law, some of the nuances are extremely slight and extremely difficult. That's where we get reversed sometimes. Mm. Um, but uh, really, it's just engaging, and it really opens your mind, and it's fascinating. You know what I noticed from being, I, I obviously have not gone to law school, but I think anything I've learned has been like through osmosis. And I don't know if I get it right every time, but I think like over the years, I've noticed a tremendous amount of change in the law. Mm -hmm. You know, it's ever changing. And I can remember the judge's secretary always walking into every courtroom, adding those little addendums to the books. Now I think everything's digitalized, but you guys don't even use those books anymore that much. Remember the, yeah. the books? So yeah. in the old days, they'd be like, can you go in my lobby and get that book off my desk? Like, mm -hmm. now you guys just look on the cell phone or the laptop. And well, they're transitioning at this point. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm a person who grew up under the old era of books, pocket parts, which are the little things yeah. we inserted in the back and yeah. get me volume 427 of the mass right. reports because that's what we do. And I would say this, um, and, and again, I retired two years ago. I reached mandatory retirement. Um, so things may have changed a little bit in the intervening months. I suspect not so much. Uh, they are moving towards the idea of more digital capacity out on the bench with screens, computers, etc. And of course, the pandemic and Zoom issues accelerated that. Yes. But as, during the time that I was on the bench, we were still, for example, if I wanted to look up something while I was out there or somebody cited a case to me, I would be going to the, to the reports. You'll remember in our first session in Dedham, we had the large bookcase yes. behind us and we were hmm. frequently plucking books off of right. there. And as we went along, uh, you know, researching as we went. Yeah, I saw that less and less as the years went on. Then the lawyer would have their cell yeah. phone. All of a sudden, it was okay to have a cell phone in the courtroom. Yeah. You know? But mm -hmm. it exponentially moved things forward. It, it does. No, and I mean, it, technology is good. It's, you know, it's just uh, when being used to a different format. And, all, and also... Um, uh, not a secret out of school, the, tri the trial court has not been on the cutting edge of technology vis-a-vis -vis private industry, private law firms. Um, there have been some clunks along the way. They work very hard and they have budget constraints and it's difficult. But I, because uh, I know, <laughs> we've had the experience of having, especially the last decade I was on the bench, of having newer judges come in. 
and they would kind of look around and go, what? You know, I, <laughs> you know, yeah. they were used to being in a uh, plush city, you know, in, yeah. a, in, a, in a law firm in the yeah. seaport and, uh, you know, with, with a, a, a expansive budget. And now we were in, you know, balanced budget land in, uh, w- with the state court system. Yeah, like two steps above quill pens, as they say. You know? <laughs> yeah, they they went out about fifteen years ago. Yeah, uh, that's what was what I was. Can I can I just ask you one thing before we get sure far along? Darian's got a slew of great questions, but you mentioned political science was one of your mm. one of your likes and and passions, and it just dawned on me that there is such an important linkage between the political science, the legislative process, and the law in the courtroom. And and you're emerging as a judge. You know, you're sort of the center point. You're the merge of both. What's the new law state? How does it interpret, and so forth? Uh, you pick the right fields to be interested in to be a judge. I think. Well, yeah, that's a very good point, Jordan. Because um, you know, the laws are made a little bit in the abstract, and then you have to see that they're executed on the ground. Mm-hmm. And oh my goodness! And of course, and one thing that always struck me was people kind of think in very generic terms. What's the best thing for this overall thing? But in a, being a judge, you're in the business of doing individualized decision making about each case with a myriad of variables that could almost not be predicted sometimes. And so sometimes, you know, I always say the cases do not, as Diane well knows, the cases do not come out of cookie cutters. They all have their nuance. They all have their differences. And it makes it, uh, and sometimes we get statutes that are very, very challenging. Uh, We've had a few that don't make any sense. We've had a few of them that'll say um, the the, the item referred to in the preceding section, and there's no item referred to in the preceding (laughs) section. And you have to, we have rules of statutory construction that we follow. And of course, we always have appellate courts over our heads appropriately with more time than we have to look over a lot of things, more leisure to have it argued out later on. And, you know, they are always a corrective if something goes wrong. But it's uh, it's not an easy process. And the legislature's got a tough job having to make laws to be able to apply to all of these myriad of conditions that they can't foresee. Now, that's interesting you said that because every case has its own <clears throat> problems. So, we should, so, you know, like you have to face... A defendant won't come out of the cell. He's irate. You know, um, a witness, I see this, and I used to see this in Boston, a witness wouldn't show up and would be sitting, the jury would be waiting, the Boston police car would go to the home to retrieve the person that was reticent about coming to the court. Like, there's always a problem. No matter what case it is, it takes its own shape, and the judge has to triage it, so to speak. Yeah, and, and, and I'll, I'll tell you one aspect of this that becomes very, very vexing for a judge. Um, when you put a jury in the box, you have to give a jury a very rough timeline of the parameters. This case is not, not expected to last more than four days or whatever, a week. And, you know, things happen along the way. The witnesses don't show up. I've even had, you know, defendants at times who who... Uh, are gone. You know, they'll be there. I have a case when we tried to defend who was there through the closing arguments, and then, then the next morning, while the jury was out, didn't return, which has happened in a few a few cases, in, in different. You know, not doesn't happen that regularly, but it, it can happen. And you know, you absolutely are duty bound not to tell the jury anything about that. We also have had some logistical bumps. Now, this is one day, and I'm sure you're familiar with. 
the van isn't here yet, Judge. Oh. Um, and and it, because the issue that comes up is oh, yeah. a jury is not supposed to be told that a defendant's in custody. Right. And so th- if some issue comes up and the local sheriff has some problem has come up with the person at that jail, they have enemies, you know, totally could be you know, a legitimate issue arose. They park the person two counties away and then they have to be there on time. And so you do everything you can. We were very lucky. We had a terrific chief court officer uh, in, in, in uh, uh, Norfolk and Patricia Bellotti. And yeah. she did great work. Uh, she was great she work on the phones and, and making sure we got people there as best we could. But it's not a perfect thing. No. And the problem is, so you, the jurors, you tell them, make sure you're here at 9 o'clock. So the jurors are dutifully there at 9 o'clock. Where's the defendant? Judge, the van didn't come yet. Call the jail. We can't reach anybody at the jail. I've ended up making calls to the jail when they're not, you know. And it's quarter of 11. And it's quarter of 11. And they're going crazy in that little room. They're going crazy. And then they come out. Oh, yeah. And you kind of look and smile at them. And they look (laughs) daggers at you. And the problem is that it's just, it's really uh, a very anxiety-producing thing, I would have to say, as, as a judge. Because that's the one time that really bothered me a lot because I'm thinking, what are they thinking? They're thinking the judge has been hanging out in his lobby, he's been drinking coffee, doing God knows what. And I can't breathe a word, which is appropriate. I should right. the defendant you can't should, tell them what's really going on. And, and good Lord, it's one thing if the, you know, and it's even you know, if the defendant comes in late, while he's not in custody, you're very unhappy with the defendant, but you wouldn't say anything. But if it, the defendant had nothing to do with it, the van didn't show up, he can't get there by himself from the jail. So these are the kinds of issues logistically that are uh, can be difficult. I think I was telling you, Jordan, a few months ago, they sent me to Plymouth County, Plymouth, Mass., not yeah. Brockton. We set up, we're waiting to impanel, the van from Plymouth, a mile down the street, inadvertently drove the defendant to Worcester. Oh, my goodness. You're right. So I remember that. think about that. Yeah. You know? It, it almost sounds, use a perfect word, triage. That's, that's beautiful. But it almost, you know, you're a referee, you're a maitre d', and you're the, the expositor of all known legal information. It's a lot of pressure on a judge. And not suggesting that you're not up to it, but... There is pressure. We're, we're benefited and we're very fortunate that the staff is very good. For example, as Diane knows, in, in Norfolk, where I sat, we had absolutely marvelous clerks. Mary they, Hickey. Mary Hickey. Is the, she where is the best find a better public person? servant I have ever encountered in my life, the, the first assistant yes. to Walter Timothy, yes. the, the clerk. And she is just a, a, a marvel. But the session clerks are great. I had good fortune. I've sat in Suffolk and Middlesex and had very good clerks there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the pressure falls on on them to do all of these various things to make sure, you know, that the, the, the train gets out of the station, if not on time, at least <laughs> approximately to one time. And there's a huge caseload. Yeah. And they don't understand, I think, sometimes in the afternoon when you do the session, like yeah. you, the call of the list, that's getting each case in a posture to be ready to try. Yeah. You know, like one day my brother, I had a pretrial memo and he looked at it, he held it up, he said, what's this? I said, he said, I just thought you showed up to court on the day you had your case. I said, are you kidding me? And there were so many steps and things, like I look at those fat books in every courtroom. There's a rules of criminal procedure and there's a book, rules of civil procedure. And I tell friends they're like a recipe book, like a cookbook. You have to open it to what you're doing and follow each step or it won't come out right. You have to comply by a certain date. That's the only way I can analogize it to people. But there's a lot 
like to me, when someone gets indicted, the day they get indicted and the day they go to trial looks really different. The case has mm-hmm. morphed and there's been motions and things have been thrown out and, you know, all kinds of that. You always say, why does it take so long for it to get to trial? But many things happen in that one and a half to two years before the trial date. Yeah, and I would have to say this. The biggest single thing that's changed. See, I started practicing in 1977. So I've seen a a world of change between the time I started practicing in 77 and the time that I retired from the bench in late 2020. And during that span, maybe one of the biggest single changes, especially on the criminal side, was the advent of scientific evidence, which has slowed down the process considerably. I mean, I can recall when DNA was a new process in in the court system in terms of uh, uh, testing of evidence. Uh, and it started off, this would be used, oh, murder cases. And now, you know, we, it's done, the blood tracings on a knife, it's sent out for DNA. Um, both sides are entitled to inspect the DNA, but think about how much that front ends a lot of delay into the trial. Because there's a motion to have it exam. First, it has to be examined by the government, and it comes back, yes, it's a positive match for someone. Uh, frequently, there's a, um, a motion to have some DNA taken from a defendant or a, a potential suspect. Uh, the, the, that testing process follows through. And then after that, the defense is entitled to have, potentially have their expert look at it also. So these are things that have elongated that process before you get to trial. That's Dober Lanigan, right? Wasn't that the- yeah, Dober- Baron Lanigan was a little tweak on all of that. That had to do with with, um, testing methods that people were a little shaky on. We found over time that there are certain types of uh, testing that had the patina, the kind of image of being scientific and super accurate that were a little more interpretive. For example, fingerprints have been in that category. Uh, And and so there's there's been a very sharp look at all of these various processes to see whether or not they are scientifically verifiable and, how, and, and to test their accuracy. Another one, for example, is dental bite marks. That was one that, coming out of the gate, they thought it looked very good, and there have been a lot more questions raised about tire it. Tire marks. Remember the tri- tire track thing? They yeah. used to do that. Yeah, like my cousin Vinny. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I, I just think, to me, from what I see from juries, they always want now scientific evidence. I don't know if it's the overwhelming amount of TV shows like CSI yeah. and all that. They want that ironclad. And then people that are being exonerated for crimes they mm. didn't commit, they want that, that DNA stamp of approval before they give the guilty. To me, that's what I see. Yeah, well, it, it, it's, it's, you know, some, some cases may simply not have any scientific right. evidence for a lot of different, right. a lot of different reasons. Um, but, you know, you touched on something that's very important, which is, you know, it is important to preserve the evidence in cases because we have had such advances on DNA that a number of these exonerations have happened because methods of testing were not available earlier. And it is just absolutely so important that evidence be preserved and be preserved safely. If there are any advances, it can be tested. Uh, it can be tested in the future. Mm. Well, I'm going to segue into something else, another area now mm-hmm. that I'm dying to talk about. 
why is there not Wi-Fi in the courthouse? It's just so antiquated. And is it because it's all marble? I don't know. It doesn't get it. And why is the stipend for a Massachusetts juror a lousy $50 per day? Why? Well, this, answering the second question first, it should be higher. Oh. And most, you know, I think most judges would agree overwhelmingly that you, you know, you really need to pay people. Um, we deal with a state budget. Obviously, we're not, in, you know, we, we don't, we have no control over right. how much people are are paid. Um, all, you know, the legislature decrees it, and and basically, basically, that's that's it. Um, we do have the ability in a hardship case to order more. Uh, if there's an, a hardship issue, it's potentially pot possible, but it's uh, it's not a, the process is somewhat difficult. It just it really in essence we're looking at the fifty dollars across the board, and it makes it harder on selecting a jury. Yes. People claim hardship. Uh, we always hear from self-employed people who say, "I'm not," you know, and, right. and that that definitely. And you want to make sure you don't skew the jury pool. Right. You don't want the you know because certain employers are more likely to. Be forbearant if the, 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 the you know, no, nobody's ever supposed to take any action against someone for taking jury duty, but some persons would simply be paid for their time, mm. and others it's more difficult. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the Wi Fi question. Is that a technical question? That <sighs> you know, I, I have to say, to ask no, I, I, well, it, it's a, I, I know that the trial court is very, very concerned that they are um, about security issues and things like that. I honestly am not sure why it can't be done. I, it seems to me it's something that is not insurmountable. I would tell you this. Um, <clears throat> the jury commissioner's office began doing a very good practice of asking for feedback from jurors. And it was amazing to me when I got the feedback in, in Norfolk it was amazingly positive, especially about our court offices. People couldn't get over how well they were treated. We had a, we've had a number of tremendous people uh, running and involved in the jury pool. We had a longtime person who was there. Maureen. June, June Kelly. And then June, yeah. June Kelly. June Kelly. And then Fabulous. afterwards, Doug Carilli came later and has done, has done a great job yep. for us. And we've had, I don't mean to, to leave anybody out. No. We've had ma marvelous people. But the complaints are always no Wi-Fi and why all the junk on the vending machines. <laughs> Those are the, the two big complaints I get. I, I just wanted to ask something uh, that you probably get asked and have been over the past several years. Now that you're retired, you can muse on it too. Misconceptions that people have about the power of the judge, particularly in sentencing. Particularly in sentencing. I was just going to ask that. Was it? We yeah. think alike because yeah. you're the genius. I just, I just siphon my genius off of you, Diane. I knew you were going to ask that internally. No, um, there's a lot of political pressure on yes. on uh, DAs around the country who are very lax on bail, but that's a different issue. You're the sentencing uh, part of the case, and how much power does the judge say in Massachusetts have over that? Um, well, I guess the best way to answer it is to talk about the format of how sentencing, uh, in a sense, operates. The framework is set again by the legislature. The legislature gives maximum, minimum terms for potential offenses. Um, a lot of them make sense. Uh, a few of them don't. Um, for example, we've had one a statute in the books for a long time on malicious damage to property. And malicious damage to property has a maximum of 10 years. It's presently, if the value of the damaged property is $2,500, it used to be $250 until not that long ago. 
while simple assault and battery, which could be a dreadful beating as long as no weapon is used, the max on that is two and a half years in the House of Correction. <laughs> so there are, there are some odd dis- – and I, I'm not throwing mud at the I legislature in yeah. any way. I'm just yeah. saying there are some disparities that make right. this a little difficult. Add, so a judge has that range of sentences. But add to that that the legislature has enacted a number of mandatory uh, sentences that, for example, handguns were the first, a one-year mandatory minimum for unlicensed possession of a firearm. Uh, and lately we've had drug offenses that, uh, that, are, that are ratcheted towards the quantity of the drug that is possessed or trafficked, trafficked or sold. And so the judge's hands in one sense are tied because – once the case comes out of the grand jury with an indictment charging X, mandatory sentence, offense, it is in the hands of the prosecutor whether to reduce that or not. Now, I found the prosecutors and the courts I've sat in have been pretty reasonable. Um, you know, they, there's a lot of discussion that goes on uh, and a judge is entitled to weigh in. It's only allowed to go down. It can't go up on the part of the prosecutor? Now, well, the man well, – once they're indicted, that's the charge. That's but the, the charge. But the prosecutor can ask for a uh, – for example, if the minimum was, say, a five-year sentence, but the but the maximum allowable were 20, the prosecutor can still argue for a 15 or 20-year sentence. Right. Gotcha. But um, the judge has the ability to uh, coax and attempt to persuade. And one thing I found over time is that – you know, especially where, if you've done a lot of criminal work, I've done a lot of criminal work in the superior court. If you've done it either as a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, you have a pretty good background. Experienced prosecutors and experienced defense lawyers tend a lot to look at the cases the same way. They tend to look at them, understand what sometimes put the kind of, you know, oversimplistic term, the value of a case, what the sentencing might be. And it kind of moves people a little bit together in terms of the sentencing issue. But at the bottom line is the judge has a great amount of authority over what they're permitted to do by the legislature, which may be limited by a floor of a mandatory sentence. You know, I just as a citizen, when I'm with friends or something, and we're talking about the latest thing on TV, the latest, you know, criminal thing going on in the area, I, I find two things. I find that citizens and friends of mine and relatives have enormous respect for a judge. But at the same time, under their breath sometime, they'll be like, he only sentenced him to mm. eight years. And I, I always say to them, because the jury came back with second degree, the jury has spoken and his hands, his or her hands as a judge are tied. You know, and I try to tell them there's a lot going on before a you know, before something is someone is sentenced, did they have a previous record? There's all kinds of mitigating factors. Yeah. So that, you know, is a misconception. I know you have a lot of broad powers, but a lot of times you're following what the legislature has said. Right. That's, that's one it. part of the equation. Yeah. Another part is, you know, wise people have said if you really want to comment on the sentence that's given after a trial, say, you probably should sit and listen to the trial. In other words, um, if you just know so-and-so was convicted of such and such an offense, you don't know all of those background factors. You don't know about potential mitigation or potential aggravation, for that matter, that comes out for the facts of the case as it's been been tried. And, you know, those are things that uh, the public, uh, you know, I think needs to recognize. At the same time, though, I have to say, I think it's very important to have transparency in sentencing. Um, you know, sometimes 
you will have a case where there's a problem with the case. A victim may be very reluctant to come in and testify. A victim may weigh in and say they don't want to go through the ordeal right. of a trial. Yep. And so it may end up judge imposes sentence of appears to be low to people on a particular crime, and people are very upset and unhappy. Um, you know, it's difficult, but I think it's very important for the court to articulate to the extent it can on the record what the mitigating and aggravating factors are that are leading you to that sentence. I'd say that with a couple of caveats. There may be cases where, for example, a prosecutor may look, may make a recommendation for a sentence that appears to be a lower one because a, a person could be cooperating. And that's something you don't really want to necessarily broadcast. And so a case may go you know, for a lower sentence with the prosecutor's agreement, simply pretend some cases because there may be cooperation. Now, that's something where transparency obviously may be more of, a, more of an issue or more of a problem. But generally, I think it's important. It's, it's important not just that we give a, a, what is a, a fair sentence, but that we appear to be giving a fair sentence for public confidence and trust to the extent we can. Now, that's something else I'd like to touch upon, and Jordan and I have talked about this a lot. Um, at the close of a case, when there is a sentencing hearing, the victim witness, um, you know, the impact statements that are given, yeah. and those are riveting. Yeah. Now, when did they—I remember those going on for a long time, but that they didn't always have that option. They didn't. Um, it's statutorily victim and victims are entitled to be heard at, at sentence— uh, and that that was not the common practice when I started quite a while ago. Uh, it is now. Those are extremely difficult sometimes oh, yeah. and extremely emotional, as I know you've seen on 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 so many uh, on so many occasions. And I mean, I've seen cases. Fortunately, not in my courtroom, but I've seen cases where there can actually be attacks and physical violence sometimes because the emotion is so close to the yes. surface. And, you know, having tried as a lawyer, I mean, having tried murder cases, you know, you know how raw everyone's emotions are at that, at that point in time. Everyone's on pins and needles as the jury's coming back. What's the verdict going to be? And then when you get to the sentencing, um, the loss can be is so profound for the victims. Uh, it just is very difficult, and a judge has to be so careful. You all feel, in a way, you have to you have to set the parties at a particular almost stage managing it in a sense. It sounds which sounds mm-hmm. cold, but it's you have to make sure you keep order and that people you know who the, emotionally it's so hard for people. But but I but I would say this. I've seen such eloquence from victims addressing cases, uh, people who sustained loss, and you you have trouble as a judge just keeping your composure. Isn't it unbelievable? Way. So half the time they cry through it. I can't understand what they're saying. I'm trying to get the words done. I'm like, oh dear God, because they're really crying. But um, I know that you always say, please address your comments to me, not the defendant. And sometimes they'll turn to the defendant in any way they'll. Mm. But I've seen like mothers in Boston, like forgive the person yes. that murdered. Yeah. You've seen that too. Yeah, yeah. And I, but I, I would say this on this issue, and I, I think a lot has to do with people's ex- expectations. Sentencing is supposed to be imposing some punishment on the person uh, for the various reasons. We have deterrence, rehabilitation, 
incapacitation, all these different reasons that sentencing uh, occurs. The person is going to be sentenced. The victim is absolutely allowed to be heard. Now, often, you know, as you know, very often the, the, the idea is hear from the victim so that the judge can know what kind of sentence to impose. Well, if we're talking about a first-degree case, the you person's know, going for natural life. It. Yeah. So it doesn't, in that sense, influence the sentence you do because you're, you don't you're have... No option. Right? You, you don't have an option. So what is what does it... And, and, if it and, and my view is the people should be heard at that time. It's totally appropriate. However, my own view is having the victim emotionally confront the defendant at that point in a way that can gin up uh, potential because the emotions are so real, they're, they're valid, they're, and, mm. but mm. Um, I want to make sure there is not something in the courtroom that endangers anyone. That's my first priority. We have a difficult process to carry through, but I want to make sure everyone's safety is protected at that point. And I let the, the victim know, I'm going to be imposing a sentence, but I want to know from you, you're, you're telling me what it is that you would like me to know before a sentence is imposed. And I try to incorporate what they say into when I, even if it's a mandatory sentence, hmm. I'll talk a little about mm -hmm. the case and I will commend the person for their eloquence, which almost invariably happens. Then at this, the moving quality, uh, and and to me that you know that's the way it's, that I handle it. You know, the next thing I wanted to touch upon is a, a misconception that people will always share with me. They think they don't have a right as a citizen to enter a courtroom. It, it, it blow, it, I tell them they have as much right to enter that courtroom as the local library. That's right. With a few exceptions. I mean, juvenile Perfect. court or trade secret, very rare. Extremely. Yeah, but it's the people's court. Can yep. you just touch upon and tell absolutely. everyone that's listening? A They're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is one carve-out, which is juvenile proceedings, which right. is delinquency, child custody in the in the in the juvenile probate, probate court mm -hmm. where, where the custody may be removed from parents, those types of cases. Everything else is 100% public. We used to, uh, there was a time when the door was closed for jury selection. That's right. And it, this caused quite a stir. And it was, the, the, uh, it was ruled that it must be open during, during jury selection. A lot of it had to do with the limitation of our space and the number of jurors we needed in and, and risk that the jurors might hear something during the impanelment process. But it's irrelevant what the factors were that went against it. The law, the constitutional law is set down by the U.S. Supreme Court is that the courtroom is open at, at, at that time. So people are absolutely entitled uh, to come in. Um, you know, the, our system and our process believes that having an open process, availability of the press to be present, availability of the public, that all of that is extremely important. And, you know, it's really, really interesting. Like my mother, she's too old now, but she would come in the afternoon and she'd come with her friends and they'd sit in first criminal. Yeah. And, you know, I'd ask the judge if they could sit in that jury box behind me, you know, where I sit. And I'd hear this as they call, you hear, oh, you know, like they were like shocked. And I said, I think I've been like desensitized or something because, but they loved it. They, yeah. I, I can't tell, you know, I would implore anyone that has a little bit of time to just take a walk into one of their local courthouses someday. It's fascinating. No, it, it absolutely is. And I'd and I add to that, too, uh, the reaction from jurors. Um, one process I started, I became regional administrative in Norfolk County, 
And the process that I began that I began doing there was uh, sending out letters. My predecessor had done it, sending letters to jurors who served, thanking them for their service. And I would get feedback sometimes, and it was overwhelmingly positive. People would say how how they knew didn't know much about the justice system. They understand more about it now. They saw how hard people yeah. worked to get the to get the uh, to get the trials through. And another thing which I discovered while I was there, and I was embarrassed that I hadn't thought of it earlier. I sent all these letters out to jurors. One day I had somebody come in to see me who had served as a grand juror. The grand jurors served for three months. They only served two days a week, but they served for three months, three, week, three days a week for three months, uh, mm. two to three days. And the grand juror came in and he told me how it was a enriching experience, how much he enjoyed it. And I'm thinking to myself, I, you know, if somebody's on a two-day <laughs> tour trial, I they send them a letter. This, yeah, they're, they're there for all this time. So I, from that point on, I, I sent the letters out to the grand jurors. I, I just want to – I've talked about this in some of our public uh, forum that we've done. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is I served on a jury once, a criminal case, very minor case in, in retrospect, life-changing, life-changing judge. And you and I were talking about old movies Prior to coming in to start recording, he and I love uh, black and white. I kept thinking, it, it, I feel like Henry Fonda in 12 Angry Men. <laughs> uh, literally because two of us out of the jury pool uh, uh, kept us there an extra day because we really fought for yeah. what we believe. But I, I did want to mention this. It was so important, the judge's instructions. And I, I used to doze off in class, but I paid attention that day. Judge's instructions to the jury, judge's instructions to the courtroom, running the courtroom is, I think, a great skill. I mean, it's an art. If, if it, You know your stuff, but you yeah. also have to have that commanding presence. Yeah. I once heard, I don't mean to sound facetious or anything, but somebody once made a reference to the court, a court and trials as, as, uh, as being theater with consequences. Um, and, I think and, you're and, right. And, and I, I, don't think, mean, I don't mean to say no, that in any I, way, to, yeah. but you really have to be conscious yeah. of the aspects of running a courtroom how things need to go. Again, everybody's safety is paramount, especially Mm -hmm. in in criminal matters or things with a lot of emotion. But you have people, you have jurors coming in and out. You have to protect the jurors from information or something that they shouldn't be exposed to. Uh, you know, there may be a, a, a myriad of different different things uh, and people's emotions, again, are raw. So there's a lot to the job that involves just being alert, you know, at all times and kind of being as cognizant as you can. And it's great to have a good staff. The staff will, you know, tell your judge this wouldn't be, you know, and, and that's that's absolutely marvelous. I'll, I'll give you a, a great example of this. And I, years ago, I was in another county, not Norfolk, where they had a policy – where uh, they uh, they did not confiscate they 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 allowed people to bring weapons police whatever to bring weapons into the court the courthouse um, generally a number of courts don't allow that and I think in my mind that's much the better practice uh, and we have checked in at the door we have a whole system for that but I had a fellow who was on trial for an armed robbery and uh, you know he was facing some serious time if he were going to be convicted. He uh, had discharged a number of his lawyers and now was representing himself. And so we were about to start the trial and the the fellow was there. And of course, he's, you can't have anyone in shackles or anything like, like that. We had the court officers and he was at the, at, at, at the defendant's bench. And my court officer said to me right away, judge, don't forget 
we allow officers, the officers testifying in the trial, to bring in firearms. You know, we don't take the firearms. He said, when he approaches the witness to show them a document, please bear that in mind. And something I, that had not dawned on me. And the court officer, she was right on top of it. And so I said, I told him, I said, this is the ground rule. I said, if you would like, and, and it didn't, that wouldn't happen a lot, they'd be approaching to show, but it could. And I said, Mr. Defendant, if you would like to approach to show something to the witness, just tell me you'd like to do that, and I will have court officer take it from you, walk it to the witness, show the witness, and walk it back to you. Smart. And you're, you were talking earlier about safety being prime. Absolutely. Prime and directive, and that's exactly what we're talking about. Absolutely. Remember how I've mentioned to you, Jordan, that you, as a lawyer, you just can't walk up to a witness? Yes. We always talk about that. Like, you have to have a, a solid reason, and if you're granted, you know, you can go up to the witness, you have to do what you're doing, do your business, and get back to the podium. You can't hang around a witness. Yeah, and, and, and sometimes I think people think it's a little stilted, or the judge is trying to micromanage or control, but you really <clears throat> do need to... I think attend to that and be careful. Interaction with witnesses, interaction with jurors. Yes. You need to be very, very careful and cognizant of that at all times. They can't get too close to the jury bench. They can't hang, you know, where the jurors are sitting, the jury box. Yeah. Everyone has a place. Yeah. It's, it's very orderly. But I don't know how much time we have left, but I would like to talk about one thing, and I think a lot of citizens would like to um, hear this, is to demystify the arcane practice of impanelment which is choosing a jury. And there are many ways to get to a jury. I've seen judges do all kinds of different things. They all work. I've seen them arbitrarily just fill the box and then they, you know, they weed yeah. them out. I've seen them, you know, when the boilerplate questions are asked and the cards are raised, I've seen them trying to make time. In essence, they pick the jurors that didn't raise their hand. I don't know how true that how you know how that skews things but i've seen everything that they've done but hmm. now we have the with the advent of um voir dire by the lawyers that's yeah. only been about five or six years now yeah and and i would tell you massachusetts was be not in step with most states most states allowed it um the lawyers to conduct voir dire. I think there was a fear on some part. The judges felt they didn't want the jurors to be uncomfortable. Um, the legislature spoke. That's the end of the story. And we, we inaugurated it. It was a huge sea change for us as judges uh, to, to do it. And I've seen it done by lawyers in a good and an effective way. And I've seen it done by lawyers in a not, a not very effective way. I, I would say this. Um, it's a difficult process to pick a jury, say, and especially in a criminal case where the stakes are so very high, you want to make sure you get people who are unbiased and impartial. So the manner in which I did it was simply you ask what are the considered the statutory questions. Can yeah. you be fair and impartial? Do you understand the government has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, etc.? Then I would solicit questions from the lawyers. And many, you know, for, uh, to give you an example of a question, if the defendant was uh, a member of a particular ethnic group or racial group or, if, uh, or there was an issue of sexual preference involved and there was a potential fear of, via, of, of, of bias, then in that circumstance, I w always would say the defendant is whatever the group might be, is there anything that would make it difficult for you to be fair and impartial? Now, I know a lot of people won't necessarily raise their hand right away to it, even if they harbor those sentiments, but at least it is a start. 
uh, I, I was frequently asked, Judge, would you be willing to ask that, for example, a racial ethnic question one at a time at sidebar? I never turned it down, ever. Absolutely. I want to make sure. I don't want to do form over substance and people don't raise it. If pe people come forward and we get a chance to evaluate them a little more close up and they're not in a whole herd of people right. where they're going to say, I don't want to look like a bigot and raise my yeah. hand. They're more and, inclined to be candid when they're just right. with you and the lawyers and me. They'll, they'll, you know, but can I just interject here and hold sure. that thought? Voir dire is only a fancy word for questioning a potential juror mm -hmm. to see if he or she will be a good fit for the case. People, you know, the law is littered with Latin terms. <laughs> yeah. And you and I, you know, voir dire yeah. means, and venari, all that is is a group yeah, bunch. of potential. <laughs> the bunch. That's all it is. A group. So the big group of people show up in the courtroom, that's the venari. And yeah. then we begin the impanelment process, which is just choosing the jury. And we voir dire the group. But then we go a step further at sidebar and have like a private powwow one at a time with a potential juror. Powwow, so, is that uh, Latin? Well, we just, you know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But there's a lot of Latin. I mean, when I first went to the court, I didn't know what you guys were talking about. I had gone to court reporting school. I took that legal terminology. I'm like, like when you guys are like the Lattimore <laughs> standard, I'm like, okay, now what's that? You know, or, you know, and, the light And those days, favorable. was there Google at, when you first started? No. Oh. But, you know, Google has helped me because I'll tell you, okay, I'm going to give you my gripe about lawyers. Here it is. When they, in open court and argument, say a case, for the love of God, will they spell it? Do you know how long I spend oh, I know, on yeah. Google? <laughs> and sure. I'm saying, and, and, and some of them are similar, but, you know, I mean, we know the ones that are over, like Dwyer and, yep. you know, Frank's yeah. hearing. Yeah. But there's some, you know, that what's that other one? GM... GMT Batista. That one. And to Benedetto, yeah, we have one. Oh, so, wow. I mean, we have all these cases, yeah. but there are a lot of things that, if they say like Mass App second at page, blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, then I have a prayer. Absolutely. When they just say it, it takes yeah. me like 20 minutes. I'm like, dear God, <laughs> yeah. what did they say? Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah, just a word, uh, and uh, this is not, you're absolutely right. Uh, and the lawyer's point of view, one thing I'd say is, especially on the, and our lawyers in all spheres, but especially the criminal side, defense lawyers and prosecutors, they have so much, I always tell the jurors, they have so much responsibility. Nobody else in our society deals with this mediation between um, public safety and individual liberty and the right to your freedom. And I mean, that's that's the sharpest point in, yeah. in, in, in a societal, you know, it's very close to life and death. And uh, they work very, very hard and they have so much to do. And I, I've been there, I'm sure I was somebody maybe when I was a lawyer who talked a lot too fast <laughs> for a stenographer uh, because, but I'm saying that they, they you know, it's, a, it's such a stressful thing to be in, but you're absolutely right. And one thing I found helpful was I would have stenographers come up to me and say, uh, you know, could you tell me what that word oh, yeah. was you said? And, you know, that's You're fine. one of those nice judges that Diane loves. That's why you're here. Right, Diane? Yes, absolutely. Not everyone is as sweet as Judge Connors. Uh, yeah, I, I shouldn't I, put you on the spot. I have uh, one question yeah. before we wrap up, and we sure. have to wrap up because sure. it's, it's been a terrific interview. And I don't know, uh, I don't want to ask this with any specific answer in mind, but have there been occasions when you've sat on the bench, say in a criminal trial, when the case is uh, brought back, the jury has decided and then your mouth drops and you say I, to yourself, I can't believe they went with that. It looked so – it appeared to be open and shut one way or the other. Has that ever happened? Well, I would say this. What I, I've had a couple of cases where I've thought I, if I were deciding it, 
maybe I would have gone the wrong way. I have one very memorable case from many years ago where uh, I had, uh, and I knew a little bit, I happened to have known a little bit about a backdrop of a case, and there were some things, that, and I knew I wasn't going to be deciding the case myself, so there was, the jury was going to make the decision, so there was some, there was just some uh, different information had come up. I had some exposure to something about mm -hmm. the defendant before, and it was a, 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 a breaking and entering of a commercial building, and the, the case had a bunch of problems. And when we got to the end of it, the juror, I thought the case came in fairly not bad, and the jurors uh, acquitted. And I went and I talked to the jurors always when a case ends. And I went into the jury room, mm. and they were so conscientious. They were so they just and mm. they ex, they told me what their thought. You know, no, they told me the, some of the things. I said I don't talk about your deliberations, but they just generally. You know, they had asked me some questions about the evidence, and I told them, and there was one particularly glaring thing where a piece of evidence had not been brought in that would have been important, and it wasn't brought in for reasons that made no sense. It had to do with a particular police department and an extreme laxity in their practices. Oh. And I, all of a sudden, I just looked at it from their eyes, and I said, well, of course. And sometimes I've had juries say to me, Jordan, um, Judge, did you make the right? Did we make the right decision? And I'll say to them, "Well, of course you did, because you're the jury." That's a great answer. That's the that, that that's the only and, answer, and that's not that's a sincere sincere I, I, answer. I, I, I've right. anything you. I've yeah. seen. The jury yeah. has spoken. You can't invade the province of the jury. Yeah. But you know, just before we wrap up, if you can just touch on a couple things, like in the impanelment process, mm -hmm. peremptories. Does it go by causes of action on the civil side? And how many, like, how many, you get a lot of them. And can you explain what they are? And can you explain that a jury of 12 in the superior court, like the alternates, like that? Aspect? Yeah, um, basically you've allowed peremptories. For example, um, you know, you're allowed more peremptories on a life felony. You're allowed a certain amount on the criminal side. You're allowed fewer on the civil side. For listeners who might not know, peremptory just means for no cause. It means as opposed to, for example, if you have somebody who you know there's a reason they shouldn't sit for bias or they know somebody or whatever else, you can say, judge, that person should be stricken. And if the judge agrees, you have limitless numbers for, 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 for cause. Yeah. You know, you don't tend to get a lot, but you, you theoretically, you have a limitless number. You only have this limited number of peremptories. It's highly controversial. In the past, it had been used to eliminate, in some cases, members of particular racial groups, mm. which was abhorrent. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case called Batson versus Kentucky, uh, got rid of that. And our case was SOARS. A source oh, yeah. challenge, conference of source. Right. And said you can't you you can't just simply knock people off. It's gotten much more nuanced and even sophisticated than that. There are a lot of limitations now around exercise of of peremptory challenges. So that's so peremptories you can do for no cause, but it's a little bit limited now. It can be stricken and overruled. I never understood when you will say, I've heard it a lot, in, not every day, but I do hear it enough. They'll say there's a patent with one juror. Ah, I don't get it. Sure. Um, uh, for example, on a racial uh, issue, um, a, for example, let's say uh, that a, um, a defendant, uh, well, let's say that there's a juror who is one of the few members of a particular racial group on the number who is seated. Okay, and so the um, the prosecutor wants, or the defense lawyer wants to challenge that juror. Um, a patent would normally mean 
you know, that, that there is a – that they seem to be being stricken, that race or gender or whatever it might be might be the factor in why they're being stricken. It's very complicated. The SJC, I believe, has even said a patent can be as one. As few as can one. Be, yeah, as few and as I've one. I've seen that. Well, yeah. so the term patent may be a little mm. bit valueless in this context. But what, what happens is this. And I think generally, the I think um, largely if – there is a sensitivity of a racial issue in a case, and it appears there are some people of an ethnicity, a gender, or whatever, who are being stricken, and it's challenged. I think it's generally a wise idea for the judge probably to ask, okay, proffer your reasons. And it's very complex, but then the, the lawyer is supposed to show a reason that may not be enough for cause but is more that the judge can feel that the person is doing it for a valid reason other than that the person's uh, belonging to a particular racial or other group. Now, just your, when you did mention SJC, for those not familiar, uh, it's the Supreme Judicial Court, which is yeah. the highest court in this Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. And the, we're going to wrap it up at the last thing, if you can just speak about the alternates and the jury of 12 and why you have extra jurors. Sure. Um, in a criminal case, we need 12 jurors to get through. Um, if it falls below 12 during the course of the trial, unless it is waived by the parties, you have to start all over again. So we people feel, well, why would you inconvenience the extras? We never got to hear the case. We never got to sit. And I always tell them it is well worth it because we don't want to start from scratch. That's the reason that we do it. They, uh, the four-person is picked, uh, and then the remaining persons, they're chosen at random. We used to – the drum. Remember oh, the yeah. Drum? The dr it looks like you're playing bingo <laughs> on <laughs> Saturday bingo. night. Yeah, it's I like, had one in my a, house. My father would pull out the yeah. bingo. It is an, an odd, an odd uh, relic, but we use, use the drum, and the people are called out at random uh, who may be the alternates. And they have a tough job because, for example, if, if a deliberation runs three days or four days, which happens there off by themselves. The alternates. They're sequestered, but they're just in a room by themselves. And so they hear the case, but they don't get to deliberate unless they, unless they're put a in deliberating is, juror uh, has to stop. And if the deliberating juror goes out, we have to tell the jurors they could have been out of three days. We have to tell them start from scratch. And there's a good reason for that because otherwise, it could be a fait accompli. The twelfth person could come in and they could say. Ah, we got it. <laughs> we already made the decision on this one. So that's what we want to guard against. So that's why we tell them start from the beginning. Jordan, anything else? Any last thoughts? No. The only thought I would say is there's so much to the law that really works. As broken as the system is, it's the best system on earth. As, as Churchill sort of said about democracy, Absolutely. there's so many reasons to have safeguards and to have justice equal. Yeah. And, you, and you're obviously a terrific spokesperson for that. So thank, thank you, you very Jordan. much. Thank well, you. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you I for am. coming by, Your Honor. Wish you all the best. Thank you. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.